Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The CEO of Eco, Andy Brumberg, is my guest today. Eco is a consumer financial app creating a single place for your entire financial life, giving you market-leading rewards on savings, spending, and more. Eco has raised more than $90 million from an array of leading investors, including A16Z Crypto, Founders Fund, and others. Prior to Eco, Andy was the co-founder and president of CoinList, leading platform for token sales, trading, and other financial services for the best digital asset projects that has processed more than a billion dollars in transaction volume. Andy also is a founding board member at Free World, a nonprofit seeking to end institutionalized poverty in the U.S. by providing access to living wage jobs for people with criminal histories. Previous to that, he studied math and computer science at Stanford. We talked about all of that. We talked about his experience at Free World, at CoinList, and a lot about Eco. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andy. If you do, please like and share this podcast with friends. It really helps us grow and attract other top guests. I very much enjoy doing these conversations, getting to know the guests and understanding the mechanics, the ins and outs of these businesses. So please help support us there. The show today is sponsored by Otter Labs at HireOtter.com. You can check out a great resource to hire developers down in South America. With over 1,300 developers in the community, Otter is a great place to find software developers for long-term, permanent, full-time positions at fast-growing startups. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andy Brumberg. All right. So simple as that. We're live. Andy, I'm excited to dive in with you today. Um, why don't we start with uh, Eco? You're running this business, which is in crypto and raised a bunch of money from really smart people. Uh, you joined the company, so you weren't a founder originally. Um, when you joined, you were working at CoinList, I believe. Uh, what, you know, for, for CoinList is an awesome business. I'm a big fan. When you left, what was the sort of spark or thing that clicked for you that was like, hey, this is an awesome project worth my time to jump in? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I had been at CoinList, helped start the business and had been there for three years. And uh, and broadly, I'd been in crypto for, well, now about almost a decade coming up on that. Got it. Yeah, wild. Over 2013. Yeah. Um, the whole story behind that, which I'm very, very lucky uh, to have gotten at that point. Um but I, I'd always believed in, in crypto from a kind of philosophical and foundational perspective that crypto has a chance to really empower people. And I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but I think that's what it's for is to put control back in the hands of people, put control of money back in the hands of people. Um, and so eco got started actually at about the same time that uh, coinless got started in 2017. And I was a founding advisor to eco. So I'd been involved in the project from the very beginning, helped recruit some of the early team. Um, but I hadn't, hadn't been full-time. And in 2020, there were a few things happening that just made me realize that I had to dive in and do it full-time. And I wasn't looking to leave Coinless at that point. Coinless is an amazing business. Um, but there were a few things happening at Eco that just made me feel like I, I had to do it first. Uh, you know, the mission of putting people's money back to work for them in a really tangible, real way. Again, like I was just saying, I, to me, has always been the dream of crypto. And so to have a chance to actually do that was incredibly exciting. Um, but there were two other things at that point that made me say, I need to go in and do this right now. 
both having to do with where Eco was in its trajectory. So it had gotten started in 2017 over the previous basically two and a half years before I joined. It was very much in R&D mode, kind of figuring out what to build, how to build it, what the pieces would be, how it all fit together. And in 2020, it was leaving R&D mode and going into operationalizing and scaling. And I could tell that it was going to be successful at that point. And I'd looked at a ton of projects, obviously, at CoinList over the previous few years, thousands of projects having to do with crypto. And I could see all the signs that Eco was going to be successful. And so there was that compelling moment where I could just see this was going to work and I should get involved in a more meaningful way. And the last piece was that um, at the phase the company was at, my skills just happened to be a really good fit for what they needed in terms of operationalizing, scaling the business, doing all of that bringing it to the, the public and having that public presence, fundraising. And those are things that I'm, I'm good at. Um, and so it's just kind of a natural fit. Yeah. And when those things come together, when there's you know, a mission, I believe in so strongly the traction that I can see, and then a, a need for, for the stuff that I brought to the table, it was, it was too hard to, to pass up. Yeah. And it was the project, uh, well-funded at that point, or like what, what was the team and funding at that point? Yeah. The team was, um, like 10 or 12 people. So it was still pretty small, um, had raised about $9 million. Uh, so, you know, had raised good money and had amazing partners. Um, that fundraising was led by Expa, um, Scarra Camps Fund, um, and Pantera Capital, um, both amazing partners, um, but hadn't really burst onto the scene in a big way. It hadn't done anything public, was all very uh, stealth mode. And it was just at that moment in 2020 where Eco was starting to come to the forefront and say, no, we should bring this thing to market. We know what we have to build. We know what it looks like. Let's do it. And so since then, we've raised a bunch more money. We've grown the team a ton. Um, we've really started to operationalize the business. And all of that has happened really in the last, last year and a half. Yeah. So I, I'm super curious what it was on your first point there that, because I think about this a lot, investing in companies and starting companies. There is that moment when you realize that this has product market fit, that you never fully know. I mean, even billion-dollar companies can collapse. But when you looked behind the scenes at Eco, did you see a fundamentally different way of moving money or doing lending or this point system? Or sort of what was it that you saw after obviously looking at many different businesses that made this so unique? Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of pieces we could talk about there that make up Eco, and you hit on a few of them. Uh, the points are a big part of it. Exactly how the the product works and how the pieces fit together, how we're able to offer these amazing benefits to consumers is this all-in-one digital wallet for your whole financial life, all in one place. There's all these pieces, but what I saw that got me so excited to your point about product market fit was, it was two things. And, and I, someone said, I don't, I don't know who this was, but someone said at some point that there's no metric for product market fit. There's no yeah. number you can look at. You just, you know, when you know, you know, when you see it, you know what it is. And, and it was this combination of what the early users were saying. Cause it was still, it was subscale. It wasn't like it had scaled to a million users immediately. In fact, we've intentionally limited how many people can sign up for the product, but people's feedback and the user's feedback was so overwhelmingly compelling, especially when you, for any product, but especially when you put it up against other financial products, people don't rave about financial products. That's not a, no one's yeah. out there, you know, raving about their bank, evangelizing their bank, running around. And so that was incredibly compelling. And then the, the practical thing that you could actually see was that people were switching their payroll over to eco. And this is, I think, a little bit of a industry secret at some level, but um, it's also out there in the open, the holy grail for consumer financial products is where a user puts their paycheck. That's it. And for most people, it's at a very traditional bank that they, you know, have banked out for their entire lives. And we can talk about that, and, you know, what people's, what most people's banking history looks like. But if you can get someone to switch their paycheck, that means you've, you've hit a gold vein and you've, you've found the right thing that's compelling enough to get people to leave one institution as their primary place to keep their money and move to another one. And that's what was happening. And that was one thing where I could just see when you add that to the qualitative response from people, if people, even at this early stage, this, you know, limited feature product are switching their paycheck, we've hit on something really impressive here. Uh, so, okay. So what, what, if you sort of break this down into tactical features, was it a, 
uh, a direct integration to a bank that allowed people to directly deposit their money from their payroll into this. And I mean, is that the feature people are so excited about? There's like a plaid integration so they could directly, obviously it's not going to be one thing, but there is some features that are overwhelmingly um, influenced, you know, by people's experience. Absolutely. So, So there's a couple things. The number one feature, if you can call it a feature that gets people to love eco and switch their paycheck to eco and treat it as their primary account is the fact that it's one simple place for your whole financial life where you can do everything. Now I say that and your reaction might be like, that's not one feature. That's, that's all the features together, but that's actually the point. The biggest pain point people feel with their money is it's just in a million different places. And if you're, I mean, certainly any listener of this, of this show, you're like me, you've got a dozen financial apps on your phone. You've got your bank, you've got a credit card app, probably another credit card app, maybe a third credit card app. You've got Venmo and Cash App and Coinbase and Robinhood. And you've got a slew of financial apps and your money's in all these different places. You can't keep track of it. It's a huge headache. It's not working for you. And when you really sit down and think about it, which we all try to avoid doing, by the way, we try not to think about this. When you really sit down and think about it, it makes your head explode. You're like, I don't, I don't know how much money I have. It's in all these different apps. And it's certainly not working for me in all those different places. And so the biggest thing is Eco's commitment to be a single wallet for your whole financial life. And that's what gets people to switch. When you when you go a level deeper, each of the things that we offer is orders of magnitude more compelling than the alternative. So 25 to 5% APY on your deposits. That's a big selling point. 5% cash back at Amazon, Uber, DoorDash, Instacart. Big selling point. This debit card we have, bill pay feature, eco points that you earn for everything you do. But all of that is under the the auspices, under the under the umbrella of a single wallet, which is really what gets people to move in the first place. So that's the number one thing that that drives a lot of attention from people. Is this a obvious um, bullseye to chase? Because when you when you name those things, the debit card, the rewards, the high yield. I think on the surface level from a consumer sounds great, but I also think there's, it's not to say that that is easy to build. I'm, I'm sure that's super difficult and takes years, but it is, it, it, uh, it is sort of, um, like I can see crypto.com or BlockFi or, you know, some name it, some other big crypto companies also targeting those probably what six, seven kind of core use cases is, is that just the the reality of the state of affairs today is that they'll be similar to in banking where it's super consolidated around maybe five or six banks. There'll be five or six large crypto companies that provide the vast majority of what people want. So they're that single wallet that you can do all these things with. Um, is that how you think about it? I think you're, I think your thesis is a good chance of playing out that, that there'll be a lot of consolidation to a few major players here because there are economies of scale. There are benefits to mm-hmm. being at scale here that cause bigger players to win over smaller ones. The thing I'd push back on a little bit or, or give a different perspective on is that we do not market ourselves as a crypto company. We don't, in fact, if you go on our homepage, it doesn't say crypto at all. And it's only if you get deeper into the site or dig deeper into your onboarding session at Eco or, or really spend time that the crypto piece of what we're doing comes to the forefront. And that's, Are you saying that Crypto.com markets themselves as a crypto company? I'm, I'm saying a radical <laughs> that Crypto.com markets themselves as a crypto company. They've, they've said a thing or two that makes me suspect it. The, and what our, our perspective is, it's actually not what people are looking for. People are uncertain about this crypto thing. They're not so sure. They haven't ever had it explained to them in a way that makes sense. They aren't, and people can get comfortable with it, but it requires holding their hand a little bit and, and, pitching it more traditionally. And I also think there's a, a little bit of an obvious point here. There's a classic sales cliche, uh, which is sell benefits, not features. You know, if you're if you're trying to yeah. sell someone a pen, don't talk about the hardness of the graphite, and the, what this, that, and the other thing. Talk about what you can do with that pen, the classic scene, right? And that's that's something that it feels like a lot of companies in the space have forgotten. For eco, we pitch the benefits. We don't have to put up front exactly how it works on the back end. Of course, we're, we're transparent. We'll tell you that. But that's not the thing that we're selling. And, uh, you know, I draw an analogy here sometimes. When, when you use Robinhood, Robinhood does not say, 
you know, initiate a Fedwire transaction to fund your account, and then we're going to store your shares, the DTCC, and you know, they don't talk about any of that. They say, press button, buy stock, own yeah. stock, and. I think we should be doing the same thing. So I do think there will be consolidation. I think big players will eventually dominate, but I'm skeptical that the biggest players in the space will be overtly crypto companies. Um, so much as just really aligned financial services providers that, you know, are powered by crypt- crypto on the back end. Sure. In the same way, Robinhood's powered by the DTCC, but not necessarily something that's put front and center for, for everyone to, to stare at on the homepage. Yeah. <clears throat> that's a good, good way to explain it. And when I think of Robinhood in particular, uh, I think of them as being in the category of trading. So if I'm thinking I want a fast, easy, mobile-centric way to trade stocks and crypto, Robinhood is my suggestion for people or myself. Um, is that a? Is there a necessary? I don't love this word bifurcation, but like splitting of the product where Robinhood really, I think, does think of themselves as a trading app. They seem to use those words Uh, under the hood. There's a lot of work that goes into integrating with the trading platforms and batching trades. And I'm sure there's a lot of brain power spent on that. Do you feel like trading in particular is something that's core to maybe eco, but maybe more broadly, like when I put money from my direct deposit into this place, uh, that I'm also able to trade with it. Cause currently I'll use USA. My money will go into USA traditional bank. And then if I want to trade stocks, it'll go into a mortgage, a broker like fidelity. Uh, if I'm going into crypto, I'll have to send a wire transfer to Coinbase or Kraken to get into crypto land. It doesn't feel super smooth. And I think, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think Robinhood, um, they allow you to move so quickly between USD and crypto because they don't actually settle that transaction on the back end between the bank and the exchange. They're just, because you can't move it out of Robinhood. You know, that's the, it's like, what do you want? Speed or freedom? You can't have both. Uh, is that, tell me how you think about the trading category of financial apps. Yeah, we, we will unequivocally offer trading. We don't today, um, but we certainly will. And what you just described is a huge headache. The idea of wiring to Coinbase, waiting for them to get there, sending it to Robinhood. And you would never, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you would never direct your paycheck into Robinhood. That's not the place you would no. put your paycheck. No. And Robinhood actually tried to get there. If you remember a couple of years ago, and they, I think they still have the accounts around, they had a big push to launch they called it the Robinhood savings account or something. And they actually got slapped on the wrist from a regulatory perspective for how they messaged it. But they recognized this. And they said, people aren't sending us their paychecks. Of course not. Who's going to send their paychecks to a trading app? So we have to open some sort of thing that's like a bank account to get money in there. And I, I think they're, you said it well, they're so firmly identified as a trading product that I don't think they're going to see a lot of uptake. And you can look at the filings. They, they haven't on... Robinhood is just the place for your whole financial life. A massively successful product, obviously, from from all all manner of perspectives, but I don't think they're gonna get to that piece of it and get your whole your whole paycheck. And I think you have to start there in order to identify there the place that people want to send their paychecks. Um, and so we'll offer trading, but I think it also it points to another realization that for power users, there's always a power tool. And that's fine. We don't need to be the absolute single best, most powerful, most features trading platform. That's okay. Because for the vast majority of people, the number one thing is, is it all in one place and simple for me to manage and keep track of? And two, are the rewards good? And if those two things are true, most people aren't doing crazy tr- things you know, that require power user features, and that's fine. Um, and so it's the vast majority of people that we're targeting, mainstream consumers, the one of everything in one place. It's really simple with great rewards, and that that doesn't that means we don't have to build all of Robinhood from the ground, which is important, right? If we if we were saying we need to build all of Robinhood, all of Coinbase, all of you know all these different things, it's you know several company sized problems. Um, but I don't think that's how you have to have to do it from the ground up. Yeah, certainly not how you start. Uh, and I think I, I agree with you that from a brand perspective, it's difficult to shift the perspective because I, I think of it as like consumers will think from my own experience uh okay the, the, we have these previously conceived categories of financial tools between and they're 
I think they're in these categories largely for regulatory reasons, because if I'm a brokerage account, I'm not a checking account. Why am I not a checking account? Because I'd have to be FDIC insured. There's probably a whole team of people that make sure you're a bank. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think you have to be a bank, be a, a mortgage uh, broker to trade stocks. And so behind the scenes, I think of uh, a lot of the tech savvy front end uh neo bank products that are out there as using the rails of the banks behind the scenes. So they'll set up an account with some progressive bank and then they will create a lot of useful window dressing, you know, great UI and mobile and web, and then people can direct deposit. But effectively they're like, they're taking, it's like an arbitrage. The banking interface is so bad and it's so clunky that if you build a whole nother company on top of that and just use the banking infrastructure and regulatory team, then you can have a great, you know, billion dollar product on top of that. Is that, is is that a, do you think that's a crutch? Like, are we, I don't know. How how do you sort of see the action, the um, traditional banking infrastructure or the banks themselves in the maybe medium to long-term, are they still going to be the, like the foundation to the house and then entrepreneurs just build apps on top of them? We've got a lot of thoughts on this topic. Okay. One of, which is, <laughs> one of which is, uh, first of all, I do think for what it's worth, the the better interface on the old infrastructure is still a valuable service. And it's it opens up accessibility for a whole lot of people that wouldn't otherwise be able to effectively use these products. And a lot of these neobanks, their core customer is underbanked, unbanked, or first-time banked people. And that's a really valuable service to be providing, giving people access to a bank account that doesn't hurt them. Uh in a way that they couldn't have it before. So it's a really valuable service. That said, we still do call that lipstick on a pig. What you just said is lipstick on a pig. It is putting a pretty interface in front of old infrastructure. And um, the analogy I, I think about sometimes is, uh, think about a sink that you pour, pour water from. A neobank or a product built on top of banking infrastructure would be like if you had really old, like decades, centuries old pipes in your house and you replace the sink with a really shiny, beautiful, top of the line, new sink with all sorts of cool features, touchless, you know, access and all sorts of different things. That's a neo, it's the same bad infrastructure underneath, but with a really pretty, beautiful, easy to use interface on top. Is that better than the alternative? Sure is definitely, definitely better. I'll take the new sink, but it doesn't fix the fundamental problem that creates so many of the issues that we face today as consumers, which is the bad infrastructure. And that's where all these restrictions, these pain points come from, delays in transferring, lost funds, fees that stack up. That's all because of the infrastructure, because of the pipes that are moving the money around. And our question is, well, can we can we replace both of those things? Is there a way to replace both the sink with a beautiful new interface that's shiny and effective and, and way better than anything else out there? Also, while replacing the pipes and improving the infrastructure that's underneath it so you can have money move faster cheaper, more efficiently, more transparently. Um, and that's where I think the future is going. Uh, last thought I would say here is, are banks going to go away? No. Banks are going to be around forever. They're going to stick around. I think anyone who, who you know, jumps in from, especially from the crypto world, and it's like, you know, banks are on their, their, their deathbed, the game's almost over for them. There's no way. Banks are going to be around for a very long time, and they're going to provide valuable infrastructure, investor in, you know, customer protections and all sorts of valuable ways. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't better options for a lot of people than using a bank as their, their primary account. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I tend, I tend to think as long as, as long as the centralized government, as long as the federal government, at least in the United States has control, you know, they have all the guns and they collect taxes and people pay those taxes and they create the rules and banks follow the rules then, and I'm not, I, I mean, I'm not a proponent of revolution. I think the government's a good thing to have in place as opposed to chaos. Uh, then that's true for sure. You know, um, do, I, I wonder though, like you have, uh, not you, eco.com on the site says we are not a bank. Uh, do you, do you have to be, are you a bank? I mean, is there some sort of like regulatory, uh, um, licensure to be able to do the, what receiving of direct deposits? I guess you have to be a bank to receive an ACH transfer, or yes, great question. Yeah. So first of all, 
Yeah, we are not a bank. We're not, we're not lying on our website. <laughs> it's not a bank. Um, and, uh, and by the way, we say that for, for a bunch of reasons. The first reason we, we put that front and center on our website is that we do want to be crystal clear that Eco is not a bank. And we talk about this more doesn't come with FDIC insurance. It doesn't come with a bunch of things that a bank offers, but in some senses, it, the best way to think of it is something that could replace your bank for certain functionality in your life. And sometimes the best way to describe something is to say what it's not. And so for us, we're being crystal clear that we're not a bank, but we're also telling you kind of what we could replace and what we could be better than for certain parts of your life. So to your point, to receive ACH transfers, which is one way of funding your, your eco account, ACHs need to go into a bank account. And so we partner with banks on the back end in order to receive those transfers. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a classic question. You know, eco is not a bank, but you have to partner with banks to receive money. And at some level, if you are interfacing at all with the existing financial system and trying to get people to migrate off the existing financial system, by definition, you need to touch the existing financial system at at least one point. There needs to be a bridge. Um, and we sometimes say that the worst part of using eco is getting money out of the existing financial system. It can be really hard. And it sometimes it's shocking how many barriers these banks put up to stop money from leaving. Um, but once you get it out, then you're into a better system and you've, you've, uh, you've reached kind of the, the better state and are now on better infrastructure. Um, but yeah, there is, there's a little bit of a painful first step of where you touch the existing system and you need to interface with that to get your money out. I, I wonder, when do you think we'll move to, uh, to not even being in the banking system in the first place? So say, you know, uh, a company has 100 employees. They say, hey, how do you want to be paid? We can pay you out in Bitcoin or USDC or USD paid in a bank. Uh, and it's, I think now there's no rule against that, right? You can companies just pay. Yeah. You just pay your employees however you want. So if people take their money to so say the money is sitting in a company, uh, account, uh, say a crypto account. So you have it on Coinbase for simplicity and you have half the team that wants to receive it in crypto. You can just send it to them in crypto. They can keep it in eco. I mean, among other tools, but they can keep it in eco and then they never go into the banking system. And then it's like, great. The banks are still around, but in this case, what are they doing? What are they doing? Well, well, the banks kind of, do you, in some ways, they kind of just dissolve like, uh, like, like Comcast TV subscriptions. Just yeah, the infrastructure's there, but I'm not signing up for that. And it, we just go full circle on the economy that sort of spirals up a, away from traditional infrastructure. I mean, the, the other the other viewpoint on it is is like banks just represent a technology layer that the government has a strong grasp over. And so the government likely is going to want to make sure they collect taxes, otherwise they die. So the collecting of taxes requires some oversight and auditability. So I, I, I would predict that that arm is just going to extend further up into the new crypto-ish ecosystem. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, a bunch, bunch of interesting thoughts there. The first point you were making about paying your employees in crypto, that goes right back to where we started this conversation, which is that the paycheck is the holy grail. That where you get paid from is the ultimate source of funds for people. Everything else comes from that. And directing that paycheck and being able to point it to the place that you care about as a user is a choice that people, most people haven't ever thought of. They're, you know, they're using the same bank account, USAA or whatever that they set up when they were a kid or when they you know, left for college or something like that. And of course, their paycheck goes into that bank account. They've never thought about another option. But you can make a choice for it to go somewhere different. You could make a choice for it to be paid in crypto if your company offers that or any number of different ways. And that's why the paycheck is the most powerful thing. So it is the source of funds for people's lives above all else. Um, and so, yeah, I do think there could be a migration where people start exercising that agency more and more and directing their paycheck to different places. And that is what begins to support the change of this this new system. And that's why I got so excited about Eco when I saw that people were actually changing where their paycheck went for the first time ever for most of these people. And that's the first step towards what you're talking about, which is being able to move entirely to a new system. So I absolutely agree with that. I also agree with what you said, that the government is going to continue to reach more and more and lay out more and more explicit guidelines around all sorts of different technology. That's natural, and, and it's definitely going to happen. 
Um, and it's just a matter of time before that happens. And so in the meantime, there's some very clear rules about what you can and can't do. And then there's some things that you can very strongly surmise are the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do and make decisions around that, even in a space that hasn't had regulation applied as explicitly to it. And it's about operating as, as best you can by the book. Yeah. Do, what do you think about the book? Do you like when you're day to day grinding on the business, are you getting feedback from your team saying like, Hey, Andy, look, great idea, man. We want to build this product, but we, we can't do it. There's either uh, a rule against that, or there's so much ambiguity that it's too risky from a legal perspective. Is that, I guess on the spectrum of not enough to too much, how do you feel about our current state of affairs and regulation in the U S yeah, well, I think a, na- just a part of operating any sort of fintech or crypto business is the interplay that you're talking about right there, yeah. that legal and compliance and regulatory functions need to be involved in product development from day zero, because there's a lot of rules out there, some written, some unwritten, and you need to figure out how to follow them. So does that happen at Eco? Absolutely. Spend a ton of time in the product development process thinking about what we can do and how we can make it work and what's what's allowed and what's uh, what's not. In terms of is there enough, too much, too little. Like, I think there's, I would have a million different tweaks that I would suggest to, you know, how things should work and what's allowed and what shouldn't be allowed and all those different things. Ultimately, the thing that I always come back to is there's this, this feeling sometimes that I get from other people operating the space of kind of the specter of government as this malicious, you know, we're trying to kill the industry. Are there perhaps some people that, you know, don't like this industry and, you know, want it to be aggressively regulated in favor of uh, more traditional markets and businesses? Sure, for the most part. But for the most part, people just care about protecting consumers. And everyone's aligned. No, no one wants anyone to lose money. Everyone wants everyone's funds to be safe. Everyone wants everyone to have visibility into what's going on with their money. And so at that point, when you can shift frame and start thinking about regulation from that perspective, that actually, we're all on the same side here, trying to make sure that people have the best experience of their money possible. Then it's just a matter of dialogue and conversation and figuring out where the right balance is. Access is a constant uh, discussion. Access to more services gives customers more choice, benefits customers more, but also introduces more risk. Inevitably, mm-hmm. that's that trade-off that you have to make. And so it's just about a dialogue and making sure that you know, you're remembering that everyone's on the same side here, making sure that people are safe and, and have access to good financial services and, you know, get to what the right, the right conclusion is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, man. All right. Uh, so we got, we got eco down. Do you feel like that's a good explanation? I signed up, you know, I, I signed up for the mobile app and it gave me the wait list. I was like, Oh yeah, get in. So you just overflowed or are you capping it for some product testing? Yeah, no, we, um, well, first of all, we can get you off the wait list, but second of all, uh, you know, for us, one thing that's really important is that we onboard every user to Eco one-on-one. So we actually have a conversation with every single user uh, over text, not not live, but over over uh, messaging product. Um, and that's about education. Because for us, changing your primary account, directing your paycheck to a different place or using a different product for your money is a big decision. And I think that's something that's not given enough attention by a lot of people. So we actually have a one-on-one conversation. And an onboarding specialist from our team talks to you, answers your questions about eco, goes back and forth, explains things to you, makes sure that you're well-educated on what you're getting yourself into, and then is able to sign you up. And that's a really powerful thing that we do that makes us much more successful, makes users much happier, just aligns everyone's interests all around. Um, and so we're really capacity constrained on onboarding people. We've got a long wait list, um, but we're working through that and onboarding people through that through that process every day. Do you... That's uh, kind of surprising to me. Um, is that due to the t- uh, demographic that you're targeting, where this the concept of crypto or something is new? I, what, yeah, or do you see this as like a temporary thing to phase off? Because it's kind of it's expensive, uh, you know, onboarding for you guys. Yeah, it's a, it's one of the first questions that comes up in most onboarding sessions is. This is kind of a, this must be expensive for you guys. Is this worth it? Is this, you know, cause people want to make sure that the, the business that they're deposited, that they're pointing money towards is going to stay alive. So people kind of question our yeah. business decision. They're like, are you, it actually makes a lot of sense from an economic perspective. So the first thing I'll say is that 
onboarding a new user one-on-one actually does not add that much to the incremental customer acquisition cost of that user. If you look at banks, their customer acquisition cost for people in the demographic that Eco's targeting, $1,000. I think it's $1,100 right? for capital. Wow. We're curious. Where, yeah, where, do they, where do they usually spend that? Is that like uh, billboard advertising and old school radio benches, that kind of thing? So yeah, it's that sort of stuff. It's online advertising. It's also sign-up bonuses and incentives for people to open an account. Um, it's loss leading on different you know things that they offer people. Uh, but it's a lot of money because customers are really valuable in the financial services market. And if you if you really think about it for eco, us spending time onboarding you is a fraction. The cost of that is a fraction of that customer acquisition cost for you know, a big bank like Capital One. So it's easily justifiable. But the other reason it's justifiable is that uh, it massively increases customers' confidence in ECO and thus their deposit sizes. So the average deposit on ECO is more than 20 times the average digital wallet or neobank deposit in the United States. More than 20 times. Why would that be? So for, wild. Because people trust it. Because they've had a conversation with a real human being that's answered their questions, talked them through things, given them confidence, explained things to them, and is also offering a product that's incredibly compelling in the first place. That that obviously helps. But that trust matters. And if you know, if, if you really put yourself in, in those shoes, downloading an app from the app store and depositing money in, kind of a scary experience. And the reality is we feel incredible inertia about our money. If you ask anyone and you say, where do you keep your money? Almost everyone answers a big bank, the bank, like I mentioned, they've been using since they were a kid. And you ask them, hey, is that the best place for you to have your money? Everyone says no. Everyone knows that those banks are not the best place for them to have their money. But they feel inertia. Moving your money is an incredibly high activation energy to get over, an incredibly high confidence bar to get over before you go and do it. And you're just not going to do it downloading an app. You might move a little bit. You'll go and deposit 100 bucks or 200 bucks or 300 bucks and say, I'll give this a shot. But you're not going to go and really change your primary account just by downloading an app from the app store. Talking to someone, you might. And that's why we're able to, to do that. And if, if you think about the history of financial services, the idea that someone would open an account and deposit their money without ever talking to a human being is a to- very recent phenomenon for all of history. Yeah financial services in whatever form they came, of course you spoke to someone when you were opening the account. And that, that idea has kind of gone away in this age of mass scale and, you know, acquire as many users as possible. And our view is that's actually not the right approach. We'd rather acquire really high value users, people that are going to treat eco as their primary account. And that's means we're, we're happy to make the investment in onboarding them. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, uh, the first company I started was a point of sale product. Like we were competing with Square in 20. 2013. Uh, and one of the challenges was onboarding, in, the, in our case, was businesses. And uh, we, we would have this debate whether that we should have this person, have somebody on our team, customer support, uh, have a conversation with the business or just like make it super streamlined. We ended up settling on the option so people could optionally engage with people. Uh, but I think of it as a couple of different reasons that as, as you're talking about this, I'm remembering one was the the actual product complexity itself. So if people get into a product, oftentimes you'll see on web, like a hover overs where it's like, click here, click here, click here, like a, a tour, so to speak, it, especially for complex products. I, I think like simple financial tools like Venmo, probably just, you know, you just dropped right in. Uh, the other would be trust. So do I believe that you are not necessarily maliciously, but are you going to go out of business and somehow send me an email that says, hey, Mike, uh, unfortunately, we are not going to be able to refund. And I think that's that's certainly a consideration. Uh, but I think the fact that we're on the internet and there's a website where you could see how much this company raised, the people around the company, oftentimes, I feel especially financial companies and healthcare companies will put the people on the team. So you're like, all right, Andy, I'm coming for you, man. <laughs> so there's some there's some element of human relation. Uh, accountability is probably the, the right word to say. Um, so interesting. I, I dig it. It's good as it's uh, useful for people that are signing up in the first place. Um, considering where you guys are today, you, what do you feel is the obvious 
or maybe not obvious trajectory? Are, are there, um, like I was interviewing a, a guy the other day working on DeFi projects. Are there NFTs? Are people talking a lot about them? Are there things that are on the forefront of crypto that are possible now that you think are all of a sudden higher up in the product roadmap? Or, or do you feel like it's still foundation layer where you're just layering on the, the you know, the lending, the debit card, the integration with banks and that kind of stuff? But yeah, where, where's the yeah, product for, now? For us, the biggest focus right now is just expand to be better than other options for every single core financial service that you're going to do. Saving, yeah. spending, sending, trading, invest, anything you can do. We want you to be able to do in a really compelling, rewarded way at Eco. And that's the number one. Thing. And that's that's a huge project initiative, and it reaches that touches everyone. Every consumer needs that. The market is a hundred percent of the market, and so we uh, we spend a lot of time working on that. And how do we get to parity, and then beyond parity with the existing options out there for all of those things? That's yeah. one big track for us. And the other big track is these eco points, and uh, points are the native rewards currency of the eco app. Um, there you get rewarded with points for everything you do spend send save refer a friend anything you earn points but what we've started to share is that we actually see eco points as more than just another point that you have in some app we see points as the first what we call an open system rewards currency so what would it look like for a rewards currency that could integrate with different merchants in different places that different partners could use as a rewards asset where you could move it around. And I think there's a there's a huge problem with existing rewards currencies, which is that they're closed systems, they're walled gardens. And you see this all the time. Every rewards issuer has an incentive to give you enough points to get you to do something they want you to do, and then devalue those points as quickly as possible. <laughs> because once you have them, you've done the thing they wanted you to do. It's, it's again, it's not really malicious. It's just their financial incentive. Give you the points to do the thing and then devalue the points. And the reason they are able to do that is because you can't take the points anywhere else. You can't do anything else with the points. Once you have your Amex points, your chase points, you can't move them anywhere. You can't vote with your feet and leave with your points. They're stuck in that walled garden. And our view is there's a better world out there where you could align the incentives of everyone by making these points transferable in different places, turning it into an open system. And that would actually create much more of an aligned incentive for points to be treated well and loyalty points to be uh, an endlessly rewarding thing. And so that's the other track of work for us, aside from building out this single digital wall of your whole financial life, is also beginning to build out the eco points ecosystem and enable the future of, of open rewards currently. It's so interesting. It's kind of, if you sort of take a step back and think about the concept of points, it's like we're uh, we're creating this world in a world meaning a product, uh, you know, eco being one world, where you're getting like, um, you know, almost video game, like thumbs up. Like I, I get the, the, po- the, the points concept. I think originally airlines, maybe maybe credit cards, there's not all that many products where you're expected to get points, but the products where you are, it's like you it's table stakes. Like if I'm booking an Alaska Airlines flight, it's like I'm putting in that frequent flyer number because I know that there's going to be points associated with it. Same thing with credit cards. It's almost like basic utilities, maybe. I, 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 I want to talk about points for a, a little bit because I, I find the concept interesting as it is so consistent in a few areas, but so non-existent in the vast majority of, of things that people do. Like when I, you know, there's, I guess you could think of Twitter, social media as having some kind of pseudo point system where I'm getting followers, but it's not explicit. It's not like a tally as like, this is the measure. When you think of points, you think of, um, I guess I want to, I'm curious about a couple of things. One is, do you see points transitioning into tokens and then being a form of currency that is outside the walled garden, i.e. tradable on an open market or maybe closed markets? Um, and then, yeah, it will go, let's start with, with that, your reaction is that. Yeah, we haven't gotten quite there yet. Right now, we're really focused on just points as points and enabling them to be part of an open system and transferable between different places. 
set aside the token thing. Again, for us, so much of our focus is around how can we create the the simple thing that makes sense to people at a very basic level and doesn't kind of expose all the complexity behind it. Um, I don't know where it'll go in the future, but for now, we're just really focused on that kind of core open system points points concept. Yeah. How do you think about, like, what's your mental model around tokens? Uh, there's so many projects that I feel should not be tokenized, and then there's some that it's actually a core um, a core aspect to how the, the protocol or the ecosystem works. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly speaking from your experience in CoinList, you must have seen a ton of projects come in where you're like, this is, this is the first sort of around the ICO. I feel like the criticism that wasn't heard early enough, hence the I- ICO bubble, was that why do you have a token? You're, you know, you might be a product or service, yet there's some token that's just bolted onto the side. You must have seen this countless times. Yeah, what's your thought process on evaluating tokens of projects? Yeah, I will say, setting ego aside, just talking about Coinless there. A lot of those projects uh, heard from me that I didn't think they needed. <laughs> we spent a lot of time on that. Um, and yeah, we looked at literally thousands of projects at Coinless over, over my time there um, and, and said no to almost all of them in terms of working with them, mostly for that reason, that things just didn't need a token. And, uh, you know, from, from my perspective, they're, they're, will be in the future many reasons to have a token and there may be today but the number one reason is decentralization if a product needs to be decentralized and governed by its users that's what tokens are made for that's what blockchains are made for that's why bitcoin works that's why ethereum works that's why all of these assets work is because of the decentralization but if you're saying hey, we've got an app or a single product or a business that's very much a centralized entity, and we're going to create a token attached to it, that to me doesn't make as much sense. Like, why why have it be a token? Why not just have it be points in a database and have it be centralized? And one thing I always say to people is, uh, they'll often say, well, you know, we think the idea of a token is really interesting. We're curious about where it can go. That may be true. However, tokens are massively complicated versus points in a database. They're yeah. harder to build, they're harder to maintain, they're harder to control, they're harder to do everything with. And so you should only do it if there's really a wildly compelling reason to do it, which from my perspective is primarily decentralization. Well, I, um, I feel like the the initial their initial reason was fundraising, right? Like, how are we going to fund this company? Let's just mint a token. People are going to buy it thinking that it's somehow tied to the project. Right? Yeah, that to me is just a bad, yeah. a bad or illegitimate yeah. <laughs> idea. And, you know, it... it it may have happened a bunch in, in that time, but uh, those are those are not the good ones, at least from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I feel NFTs are kind of they're like the cousin of uh, of of this situation where you have tokens that are layered next to a project. You know, the brand is associated with the project. Um, the token itself was minted by the people who built the project it may have nothing to do with the project itself. It's like, okay, I'm signing up for a social media app and then there's a there's a token on the side. The number of users don't correlate to the app. Um, nothing correlates, but there, that that kind of is how I think of the, the world of NFTs where there's a, there's a JPEG or there's some digitally created piece of art or physically, and then there's a minted uh, token that's associated with that and that is owned by one person and can be transferred are we in a, I mean, who knows, but is there, is there a, a parallel analogy that you could draw between the disassociation between the decentralized token and the thing itself with ICOs and NFTs? That I am less sure about. I, I don't think it's a straight line comparison. And the reason I don't think it's a straight line comparison is that when you were talking about kind of the, the bad tokens, if you will, the bad fungible tokens of attached to some product, but really have no bearing on the product. Those tokens were useless. Like they, didn't, they didn't do anything. They had no value. They had no aesthetic value. They had no, they weren't the point. The point was the product that was the centralized thing associated with it. And then there happened to be these tokens, you know, bouncing around on the side. With NFTs, at least for the most part, it's hard to paint it too broad of, with too broad of a brush because there's, you know, examples and counterexamples for everything. But by and large, with NFTs, the NFTs are the point of these projects. 
Whereas those tokens that we're talking about are kind of on the side of some centralized business. Mm-hmm. The NFTs are at the point. And you can say, you could make the case that we were or are in a bubble for generative NFT art. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure. But I don't think you could say that those things have no point. They are, the, the art is the thing. The art and the ownership of the art is the point of it. And the NFTs are exceptional at, at demonstrating provable ownership of an asset. So, well, yes, I think you could say the assets are overvalued or the assets are undervalued or whatever. That's, that's one perspective. At least the, the NFTs themselves actually are doing something. Um, unlike a lot of those tokens of, of yesteryear during the during the ICO, does that distinction make sense? Yeah, I buy it. I, I, I buy it. There's a it's it's closer to the actual. It's like the NFT um, revolution is 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 centered around the minting of the token in the first place, whereas the ICO. I mean, in some ways, it kind of was centered around the token, but it just it had nothing. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, in hindsight, it would be obvious, but right now it's still, and it may be a technical um, breakthrough to some degree where the, the actual art or the digital content is fully controllable or retractable based on how it's programmed. Certainly the monetary structure for compensating artists is much more compelling on NFTs than uh, ICOs and tokens where there just, there was no artist that created anything. So there's no smart anything. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree. I, I also think, you know, we're seeing some innovations already on that front. Again, you could argue any of the individual pieces of art are over undervalued or whatever. That's, that's an individual perspective, but even just the idea of secondary sale royalties going to artists in NFTs is a really interesting concept. It's just not really possible in the traditional art world. The idea that every time a piece of art changes hands, a portion of that transaction goes back to the artist is happening in the world of NFTs and has never really happened in the traditional art world. Um, and so I think we have seen at least some you know, programmable utility happening in that space, which points to some level of, of value and innovation and in technology. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, you, when you were at CoinList, is the, is the model of CoinList a riding that ICO wave where it's effectively the regulatory approved trusted platform so by by parallel angelist uh, under the same umbrella i think owned by the same uh, high level company it, so it's just let's do hey we see that there's crypto companies that are raising money using this ico token methodology we're raising traditional uh funds using syndicates on angelist let's kind of make sense is that still what, what's the state of affairs today is that um yeah yeah the the origin of CoinList was that uh protocol labs who built filecoin were going to run the filecoin token sale needed some help on the regulatory and compliance side turned to AngelList, and they were working together to run the filecoin token sale and realized that every other great crypto project was going to need the exact same set of services and so that spun out and became an independent company called CoinList. was that platform um, and coincidence, really selective about who to run token sales for and who to work with, working with just dozens of projects over the last, you know, four years, five years almost, uh, out of the thousands that came in. Wow. And so the core model is still to run token sales for great crypto projects, but Coinless also offers an exchange now. So there's a, a trading platform, uh, there's lending services, there's OTC trading, um, there's all sorts of other staking services, all sorts of ancillary services around that core product. But yeah, the, the biggest driver for CoinList in terms of brand and, um, and attention has always been the core token sale platform. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's a, it was a foundational tool. I remember it's like, there really was nothing like it. Now there's uh, others, Republic comes to mind, and I'm sure there's other products I should throw out there, but I can't think of them now. Um, but yeah, the filtration of the it seems to be that maybe initially the challenge was the actual mechanics of, of raising, but now it seems like CoinList, the value prop is we're going to filter and effectively act in a similar way to what a VC fund would do, interviewing the founders, learning about the project, deciding if this is worth investing and promoting on the platform. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I want to rewind the clock a little bit. Uh, I, I found it fascinating in your background. You work for or are, are on the board of Free World, a uh, organization to help end or decrease poverty in the U.S. What's the story with that? Yeah, Free World, I'm very fortunate to be a part of the organization. Um, it's an amazing group. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, and what Free World does is it takes ex-felons especially people that have recently uh, gotten out of prison and puts them through trucking school. So trains, trains them, educates them, helps them with a bunch of resources and getting access to things they need as they re-enter society, um, pays for their trucking school, and then helps them get placed in trucking jobs. And there's a huge shortage. You can look at the numbers, million by some estimates, huge shortage of truckers in the United States. And truckers are the backbone of our economy. Trucks bring everything everywhere. It's a massive shortage of them. The jobs are really high paying, often starting around 50 grand a year. And by the time you're in your second or third year, people are making 70, 80, 90, $100,000 or more a year. Um, and it's accessible for anyone. And so Free World uh, does that. It takes people who have a criminal record, helps them get their license, puts them in jobs. And, um, and our view is that the cycles of generational poverty uh, are self-perpetuating. And you need to break the cycle at some point. Often it gets passed down generation after generation. Uh, and if, you, if you're able to break the cycle, put someone in a high-wage job, uh, you, can, you can start to break that cycle and solve that. So a, a friend of mine named Matt Mashari um, is an incredibly talented uh, CEO coach to uh, some of the top entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. Um, had actually been doing this uh, kind of just by himself, uh, putting a couple people, a couple folks through trucking school because he realized this opportunity. Um, and a few others of us, it was myself and Matt, and then another, uh, an investor named Jason Green, um, is one of the founders of Emergence Capital. We're talking and we're like, this is working. Let's scale this. Why isn't, why aren't we bringing this to everyone? This could be changing hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of lives. Um, and so we went out and we hired an incredible CEO named Jason Wang, who's, uh, who's, who's a criminal record himself. Um, and it's just a remarkable entrepreneur and he runs the organization now. Um, and yeah, it does, does all the, we, you know, are very proud of the work we're doing, taking people, helping rehabilitate, put them through trucking school, place them in jobs and, and solving that generational poverty cycle one, one person at a time. Wow. Any idea how many people have gone through that program? We're in, we're in the, the triple digits now. So we've, we've supported yeah. more than, more than hundreds of people, um, going through the program awesome. and getting placed in jobs. And it's just starting to scale in a meaningful way. We figured out a lot of the, a lot of the early growing pains. It's really, it's a, you know, every person's case is different. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And you wouldn't believe some of the challenges that you run into. Yeah. The process of getting someone's social security card so that they can get their driver's license, their commercial driver's license after being incarcerated for 18 years. It's a really hard problem. You start to run into all these little roadblocks that just make every little bit harder and harder. Um, where does someone live if they're coming out of prison? They don't have, you know, a family to go to, um, and they want to go through this and go through the weeks of intensive trucking school. Where do they live? How do they support themselves? Since there's all these questions that need to be answered, uh, we've answered a lot of them, and now it's now it's time to time to scale it. Yeah. Do you see any path to, or, or maybe it's successful as a nonprofit? But do you see any path to? scaling it in a profitable way where maybe the people that are making money on the platform could, the only reason I ask is I, I sometimes feel that nonprofits stall out. I had a good interview with somebody who was telling me about the nonprofit world. And he's like, yeah, nonprofits tend to not disclose the finances publicly because of how, uh, it, not inefficiently, but how much money has to go to operations for the initiative to be successful. And I'm like, ah, man, you know, as much as there are really admirable pursuits out there, the for-profit engine just, it just roars louder, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So, you know, for, for myself, obviously as, as a tech entrepreneur, Matt, CEO coach to top tech CEOs, Jason Green, who's seen some of the most successful SaaS businesses in the last decades be built as a member of their board. We're believers in the, in building sustainable businesses. That's, that's our view. So our intention is actually to build a free world into a self-sustaining nonprofit. So when people think nonprofit, they think what they think is exactly what you just said. 
inefficient operations and only the only uh, lever for growth is donations. Right. And our view is it doesn't actually need to be that way. All a nonprofit is, is an organization that's not meant to make the people that run it money mm-hmm. in that, in that way that are, you know, there's no equity to own or upside or exit to have. And so we actually want to make it self-sustaining nonprofit. It's getting quite close. Um, where every, we call them free agents, every free agent who goes through the free world program, uh, signs up for what we call pay it forward. And this is an income share agreement where once they're making above a, a certain minimum bar, a portion of their paycheck goes back to the organization to fund the next person who's going through the program. And by the time uh, a free world, a free agent is done with the program, they've funded the next two or three free agents to go through. And so our view is, we actually want it to be self-sustaining to be able to scale by itself. We just want every dollar possible to go towards the services rather than enriching the people that are running the business. And so that when we think nonprofit, that's all we need. But what we're actually doing is trying to run it a lot like a for-profit where you're trying to maximize the cash flows that you can serve, in our case, as many as possible, rather than the objective being, you know, let's take as much money out of this business. Yeah, that's a smart mechanism put in place. And I have to imagine that the level of concern, the level of um, gratitude is the right word for people who go through this program and successfully integrate back into society, find meaning in their life. Like you, you want to give back. And I, I, frankly, I think there's, there's not enough opportunities. What to say? Like, I find it, I find a a strong urge personally to want to volunteer, to help, to donate. Um, And I do through Patreon right now. And occasionally I'll go and help um, in the city of Portland where I'm at and try to help pick up garbage. But Rarely few and far between in the actual f- physical sense. I'm sure there's more programs out there, but the whole world of uh, giving back seems like there's a lot of, uh, the, 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 we certainly have in society a strong energy of compassion and gratitude underneath the surface of tenacity and, and aggression. And I think that partly it's the pathway of technology and entrepreneurs to layer on a simpler experience for people to give back in more meaningful ways. Um, cause I, I really think it's like a, it's like programmed into us as human beings. It's like, once you make money, once you do something successful, the first thing you feel compelled to do is to give back. I mean, how many founders you see after they sell their companies, they invest in other companies. And I feel honestly, the motivation is not to just make more money and pile it on top, but to, but to help people create the product or service of their dreams. And uh, so much of it is donated, like um, not to go on a tangent, but the Dale Carnegie and uh, Rockefeller competition before our time, you know, a century ago was really a competition of business at first, but then it became a a competition of who could donate more and leave a bigger legacy. And I think that's, um, it's interesting to think about. It's it's programmed in, you know, one of the things that made us realize that we had the right model for free world was when one of the first guys finished his pay it forward contract. So he fulfilled his contractual obligations to, you know, pay back to the organization for the people that came after him. And Jason Wang, the CEO of free world went to him and said, congratulations, you're done. You don't need to send us any more money. You've made it. You've like, you've, you've hit the bar. And he said, I'm not stopping. I'm going to keep sending a part of my paycheck back to free world to pay for more people. I don't, I know I don't need to anymore. But I just want to because this organization got me where I am today. And now I want to keep paying it forward for more people. And Jason looked at that and we looked at that and we said, wow, that means we got it. that this, this is voluntary to be able to pay it forward for the next person. Um, and that's, I think, a, being able to give people an opportunity to not only succeed on their own, but also give back and support the next person coming up. Uh, is a really important, really valuable thing. One of the things we we treasure at a uh, free world. Yeah, yeah. It very often feels like the people who have the least give the most. So deeply, deep, deep lessons there. Are there any? Is there anything I didn't ask you? Anything you want to throw out? I feel like you did a great job explaining what Eco did and and has done, and what you guys are focused on. Um, you got the points, your wallet all in one. Uh, awesome background, you know, having been at CoinList and now at Eco. Any books or people that you learn from that you uh, admire or would like to give a shout out to? Man, so many. I mean, yeah. I, I, I will actually one 
Matt Mashari, who, who really was the person who started Free World, has an amazing book called The Great CEO Within um, that's remarkable and compiles a lot of his, uh, his lessons about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a CEO and how to, how to lead successfully. Um, and so that's an outstanding book that I recommend that everyone who's, who's starting a business, or even if you're not starting a business, everyone should, should read because that even if you're not the CEO of your own company or the CEO of your own life, uh, and I think there's, there's a lot of lessons to be, to be learned there. So in light of what we just talked about, that's, that's the first one that comes to mind, but yeah, way too many people I respect and yeah. books I've loved to, to list them off. Uh, but, uh, but we'll, we'll start with that one. Cool, man. And are you, do you actively write or tweet or, uh, contribute to the social media sphere? And not as much as I should. I'd like to more and hopefully I will. I do tweet, um, Andy underscore Bromberg is probably the best place to find me, but also most of my writing these days goes into, goes into eco and, and the eco blog and the content we produce. And, you know, we produce a roughly quarterly online event called eco explore where we do a bunch of education about crypto and fintech and how the pieces fit together, um, along with uh, updates and announcements about what eco is doing with amazing guests on that. Um, we just had Packy McCormick, who's an incredible writer on the last one. Before that, Ariana Simpson, Andreessen Horowitz, and Brian Brooks, who's at BitFury and is the former U.S. controller of the currency. So uh, eco.com slash explore has a whole bunch of amazing content. More to come very soon. But uh, but yeah, we're, uh, we're outputting a lot here at Eco. Keep crushing, man. Great to, great to hang out with you for a bit. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you.